888-253-5309. This is News Talk KGVO, AM 1290 and 98.3 FM. KGVO, Missoula's news and weather station. Hey, welcome, welcome, ladies and gentlemen. The Friday edition of Talkback is here. And Talkback is brought to you this morning in part by Brooklyn Bagel and Bakery, where they have authentic New York bagels and pastries all the way from Little Italy, located out on North Reserve. Also brought to you by Phillips Janitorial. You've got a, a home or a business that needs cleaning. Only one call you need to make because no job is too big or small for Phillips Janitorial. Call 406-260-6617. The views and opinions expressed on TalkBack are not those of the staff, management, or advertisers. Okay, welcome, everybody. Glad to have you along this morning. We are expecting a call any minute here uh, from Governor Greg Gianforte. But right now we have Nick Christensen standing or sitting right over there. Good morning, Nick. Good morning. What's happening, buddy? Oh, I'm just waiting on a phone call. Oh, yeah. We're, <laughs> we, we, yeah, the best laid plans of mice and men, right? Yeah. All right. Yeah, yeah. Well, we already have two folks uh, lined up to talk with the governor. Yeah, I don't know if, yeah, I'm not sure. Emmett was calling to see if we were having open phones. So maybe let's just go to Emmett's call. All right, let's do that right here. now. <laughs> Emmett, good morning, sir. Hold up. There we go. If it's not open phones, then perhaps I should call it another time if it's not open phones. For well, some reason. Well, we're, 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 we're waiting on the governor. So if you want to go ahead and make a point in open phones, go, go for it, man. Yes, this is really important. Two excellent bills I hope people can vote for. It's in the local House of Representatives, Montana, HB 516. It criminalizes hazing. Not necessarily with jail time for minors, but I think it's a good idea to stop bullying, to just in this bullying and the culture of hazing in the Montana community. You know, that's fantastic. HB 359, I found out last night, it bans minors from drag shows. You know, like the story time hour in the public libraries. I didn't even think that we had those in Montana, but it would prohibit minors and children from going to those drag queen shows, which is absolutely, I think, fantastic. So I hope people uh, can, you know, call the 444-4800 and vote yes. Please support those wonderful bills. That's all I have in the time remaining while I wait for the governor. Well, so, well, well, thank you. well said, Emmett. Thanks for the call. We appreciate it. We're still waiting on that call from the governor. Shall we continue? Uh, I think they had questions for the. Okay. Go- I think yes, they, they had do. questions for yes. the governor, but I'm sure I mean, they do. Well, they could ask, and then maybe we yes. could forward them to the governor, <laughs> <laughs> or well, or we just wait. I I texted uh I texted his representative, so we'll see. Yes. Well, they have they have a new press secretary, so yeah, Caitlin, I believe her name is. So. Yeah. Anyway, um, <laughs> well, let's just take Jeff's call. Sure, let's, let's take Jeff's call. Jeff, good morning. I I I don't I don't play the governor very well. What's up? Well, I actually did have a question for the governor, uh, and it's regarding about uh, basically why the Montana Analysis and Technical Information Center apparently was not the one to notify him about the balloon, even though they were stood up and uh, after uh, 9-11 as Montana's Intelligence Fusion Center. So he said to the press that uh, he found out about it. Uh, after the photographers, and that concerns me that we have an, a state agency that did not notify the government of a threat to the state. Yeah, one, one, one would think that if your job is to notify authorities in case something happens and you don't do that, it's either A, you didn't know it happened, or B, you just kind of fell down on the job. Well, yeah, th- there's actually two parts to that question. The first part is, A, did they know about it? 
are they getting the information they need to from the federal government in terms of, because again, I used to work in that arena and, and there's all sorts of agencies and, uh, and, and access to information that you can have that, uh, that a fusion center would then fuse and come up with a, uh, with a report, you know, things happening at the border, things happening overhead, different stuff. And, uh, now, now, now Jeff, you know, real, real quick, what, what is the name of the agency again? So I can bring it up with the governor when, when he calls. The fusion and what? It's MATIC, M-A-T-I-C. Got it. It's, and it's the Montana Analysis and Technical Information Center. Got it. Okay. And and the, and the two points are, A, did they know about it? And if they did and didn't tell him, is there a reason why? Because that, that would be really concerning. Writing this down right now. All right, man. We'll, we'll make sure. If if, if we get a, if if we get a call from the governor, we hope we will. All right. If we get a governor, huh? yes, yes, we get a call from the governor. We're hope we're hoping there's just a technical snafu here. Let's uh, let's get Skip on the line. Skip, well, I'm sorry. Go ahead. Say, how about we just take our break let's now and hopefully it gives it time to yes. to call us. So. Amen. All right, we're going to take a quick commercial break. Seven two one twelve ninety is our number. Don't go away. Talk back continues. Hopefully with Governor Gianforte as soon as possible. Okay, we are back on TalkBack, ladies and gentlemen, and we do have Governor Greg Gianforte joining us on the phone right now. Good morning, Greg, and welcome back to TalkBack, sir. Peter, good to be with you. All right. Now, a big-time press conference yesterday, and I, I know one of your favorite expressions is keeping public lands in public hands. You really spent a long time talking about that yesterday. What happened? Well, we've had some great successes. I think the principles for us on public lands, because... Being able to recreate, having healthier uh, forests is is really critical. It's part of who we are. Uh, and we had a big victory. I was down at Mount Hagen, south of Anaconda, on Wednesday. We just expanded the state's largest uh, will, uh, wildlife management area by uh, adding an additional 800 acres. Uh, it was nice to be down there and visiting. Our priorities are really keeping public lands in public hands, expanding access, and making sure we take the, the, the voice of the local community. This was on top of a number of other victories. We just added the, 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 the Snowy's Wildlife Management Area. This is opening up access to 100,000 acres uh, for hunting and fishing. And we're keeping that ground in, agri- uh, in production ag as well. So it just shows we can, we can do both conservation and support production ag. Uh, on the landscapes here in Montana. Now, I wanted to let you know that we went, went ahead and took some calls because people uh, were were very anxious to talk with you. Our good friend Jeff asked about the Chinese balloon. Uh, did you get the information first from Matic, which I guess is a very important agency? Uh, uh, did either they didn't know, or if they, they did know, why didn't they tell you about the Chinese balloon? Well, I did not get notified until the balloon, and it was pretty slow flying. It was hundreds of miles into the state of Montana before we got notified. Our notification came from the Pentagon through the state National Guard. Uh, and uh, when I first got noticed, they said, we're going we're gonna to take it out of the sky. Just uh, hold, hold on to your horses here. And then nothing happened. Uh, I had further briefings from the White House. Uh, uh, and I, I have to say that uh, uh, I was I did not get notified right away. I was very clear in my communications uh, with the White House that, you know, if something violates our airspace, 
our uh, national security, uh, you know, we need to take it out of the sky. Uh, and to not do so jeopardizes our national security, and it also um, emboldens our enemies. Uh, and this is just not something we can tolerate. It was very disappointing uh, to to watch the whole slow motion reaction or non-reaction from our own federal government for something that should have been very easily taken care of. Yeah, I I, I agree, Peter. Uh, that's why I did have a chance to... Uh, uh, speak with the the White House uh, multiple times, and that was the message I delivered: that uh, uh, you you know the president is our commander in chief, and we need decisive action in these sorts of situations. Uh, I'm glad eventually they took it down, but it already flown across the entire United States. Uh, it was an embarrassing moment. Let's get by. Let's get to the phones. I believe Skip has been waiting the longest. Skip, good morning. You're on with Governor Greg Gianforte. What's your question, sir? Thank you, Peter. And, and Governor, uh, I sure appreciate all the things you're doing with our open lands. It's, it's quite wonderful the way you handle that. Sir, uh, if, in a supermajority, uh, we, we have something pretty different than previous sessions. In a supermajority, when you uh, get a bill across your desk that has passed both House and Senate, and, and, you, didn't, and you would like to veto it, what happens at that point, and do you have any problem children bills like that at this point? I'll leave it at that. Thank you. Thanks for the call, Skip. Okay. Go ahead. Yeah, thanks, Skip, and I appreciate your encouragement. Um, there's a lot of bills going through the legislature. I think we're at 4,500 bills, uh, and uh, when a bill gets to my desk, I have three choices. I can sign it into law, which happens in most cases. I think last session there were 550 bills that made it to me that I signed. Uh, I vetoed 17. Usually there's some problem. We're, we're wrestling over separation of powers, or there was a drafting error that makes the law uh, impractical or can't be implemented. Uh, rare with the supermajority in the House and the Senate that I get something that we disagree on basic principles because we're following conservative principles. So I can sign it. I can veto it. And if, or a third option, while the legislature is still in session, I can do something called an amendatory veto. And basically what that says is, listen, I think this is a good idea, but there's a couple of problems with it. You fix these two things, and then I'll sign it into law. Uh, so uh, that is a tool that is very useful, particularly if there's a drafting error. For, as an example, last session, there was a bill that made it to me that dealt with property taxes on production ag land. And it should have said, if you raise cows or plant crops or harvest timber. But when it was drafted, it said, and you have to have cows and crops and cut timber. Uh, and it didn't apply to anybody in the state. Uh, I ended up having to veto that because they had left the session uh, and there w- I could not do the amendatory veto. All right, let's get another call on the, on, the, on the line right now. This is Art. Art, good morning. You're on with Governor Greg Gianforte. Please go ahead. Good morning. Uh, Governor, I, I know that you've been a proponent of quality education. I was wondering, is there anything uh, going in the legislature right now that might come to you about school choice? Uh, yes, Art. There's a number of bills. Uh, we propose to the legislature that we increase the funding for the B- Big Sky Scholarships. This will uh, 
provide options to more parents to choose the education that's best for them. We also ask that they uh, modify the Digital Academy in Montana to expand its scope and make access available to more students to complement what might be available uh, through their local brick-and-mortar school. Uh, and, uh, and there's also a bill for educational savings accounts for children's with dis- children with disabilities. Uh, I'm anxious to get all three of those bills on my desk. Is there anything that has to do just with uh, straight vouchers for parents to be able to choose whatever school they want to send their child to uh, with the funding attached? Well, the Big Sky Scholarship uh, provides funding for parents to choose the school of their choice. Uh, it's a tax credit scholarship where there's a donor that makes a – they get a 100% tax credit. It was completely subscribed in about 10 minutes, and then the funds go to uh, parents who choose uh, the school that's right for their kids. So in a, it, it is a, a partial reimbursement for tuition at other schools. The educational savings account, same thing. It's initially targeted at kids – uh, with disabilities, the state would put money in a fund, and then the parents choose how to spend it. Thank you. All right, thanks for the call. Yep. Now, a couple, a couple of quick things here, uh, Greg. One, one is uh, people are asking me all the time: when can we expect to see the check start rolling out uh, from the rebates or the the refunds, basically from the two and a half or the one and a half for two billion dollars? Uh, they, they, the folks were overcharged. Where are those? I realize there there are bills in both the House and the Senate. Yeah. So thanks for bringing that up, Peter. This is a a top priority for us. We overcharged the people of Montana, we need to give it back. We proposed over a billion dollars in permanent tax reductions and refunds. Um, So for uh, the income tax rate that most Montanans pay, we're lowering that to 5.9%, down from when I took office, it was 6.9%. So this is meaningful relief across the board. That's the rate that most people pay. The rebate checks for property tax will go out in October of this year, 2023, and October of 2024. And again, we asked for um, uh, $1,000 this year and $1,000 next year. We're also increasing the exemption for business equipment tax for all small businesses in the state. That will raise that exemption from what was 100000 when I took office. It'll move it up to a million-dollar exemption for every small business. We're also proposing a child tax credit of $1,200 per child for kids under six. This is going to help particularly lower-income families make ends meet and pay for child care. Uh, And an earned income tax credit, we're tripling the earned income tax credit, again, targeted at lower-income folks to help them make ends meet. Excellent. We've got another caller on the line. We're, we're going to hang on to you and not take a break until you have to go at 8.55. So, Sean, good morning. You're on with Governor Gianforte. Go ahead, sir. Hi, Governor. Thanks for uh, having me on. I'd just like to know the reasoning back in the last session why uh, we uh, vetoed the ga- a localized gas tax law. I'm not for higher taxes. Uh, we, we're going we're gonna to reduce taxes. I think Montanans should keep it in their own in their own pocket, and that's why we're working so hard this time to lower tax rates and lower the burden so you can keep what you earn. 
I noted, uh, Governor, that there was many, many, a million billion years ago uh, when uh, when Mark Roscoe became the governor for the first time, uh, he, he served two terms. <clears throat> uh, of course, he was the attorney general as well. And there was a resolution that came out just a couple of weeks ago uh, that the, the Montana uh, GOP basically disowned him and said he no longer uh, speaks for the Montana GOP. I wanted to get your reaction on that because you're, you're a governor. I know you have difficult decisions to make every day. So uh, how did you feel about that or did you think anything about it at all? Well, I, I think that the Republican Party is expanding in Montana. It's a diverse party with lots of different people with different views. And I think anybody that subscribes to the fundamental beliefs of the uh, Republican Party, that is smaller government, less regulations, lower taxes, are welcome uh, in the Republican Party here in Montana. I think Montana is getting more and more red all the time. I did an interview with uh, with with Roscoe, and one of the things he mentioned, pardon me, sore throat here. Uh, one of the things he mentioned, what he's very concerned about what he called the far right leaning of the Republican Party right now with the supermajority, that it may come back to bite the Republican Party in the end in years to come. Well, our focus is in helping Montanans prosper. We're doing that by lowering the burden of government regulations on them so small businesses can keep more of what they earn lowering the tax burden, bringing customer service to state agencies. Uh, we're doing that in the area of affordable housing. Uh, subdivisions is a good example. We, we, when I came into office, there were almost 500 uh, subdivision applications at the Department of Environmental Quality that were overdue uh, by changing leadership, paying some overtime. We currently are getting permits out on time. You think about it, a subdivision might have 10 lots in it. 500 permits overdue, that's 5,000 houses that weren't being built because of bureaucracy in Helena. Uh, We're stripping that away to make sure government doesn't stand in the way of individual Montanans prospering. Go ahead, Nick. Yeah, Greg, this is Nick. Uh, I was curious if you could talk a little bit about what you learned from your housing task force that was put together, because I know they wrap things up, and I'm I'm really curious some of the things you learned. Patrick Barkey is a good friend of ours. He was on that task force. Yeah, he did. The, the whole group did a great job. We had academics like Patrick. We had county commissioners, mayors, uh, heads of nonprofits like Habitat for Humanity, as well as state officials. And they did a great job. The two reports are up on the web. Uh, you can you can Google uh, Montana Governor's Housing Task Force. There were 18 suggestions in the first report, another bunch of suggestions in the second. We have a number of those moving through the legislature. I'll give you one example. Uh, we Right now in Montana, there are no funds available to help municipalities put water and sewer in for new subdivisions. All of the infrastructure funds only go to replace aging water and sewer. So what that means, if a developer wants to put in a new development, they've got to foot the entire bill and add it to the cost of the houses. That's part of what's driving up the cost. So in our budget, we proposed $200 million dollars in a low-interest revolving loan fund available to towns like Missoula, counties, uh, where they're going to put in new subdivisions. But we do require, if they use this low-interest money, that these new subdivisions be contiguous with existing municipal water and sewer, and it it, uh, accommodate higher density. 
This is going to bring the cost of these homes down. Uh, that's one example of something very tangible that came out of the Housing Task Force, and I'm looking forward to the legislature getting it at my desk so I can sign it into law. Governor, I know you're busy. Thank you so much for spending this time with us. We look forward to our next visit, sir. Yeah, my pleasure. Thanks take, so much. Take care. We're going to come right back after the top of the hour uh, with City Talk, so stay with us. Hey, welcome, welcome, ladies and gentlemen. Glad to have you along on this Friday edition of Talk Back. Hour number two is underway right now. And, of course, Talk Back brought to you by Phillips Janitorial. If you've got a, a home or a business that needs cleaning, here's the number you want to put in your phone, 406-260-6617, because uh, no job is too big or small for Phillips Janitorial. And also brought to you this morning by Brooklyn Bagel and Bakery. Thank you. I'm very hungry. Come on by Brooklyn Bagel and Bakery for all your New York favorites. They have locks. They have New York cheesecake the most delicious bagel sandwiches you've ever had, by the way, and cannolis, Brooklyn Bagel, located on North Reserve. Hey, Kirsten, I'll send you Peter's way. Okay, welcome, everybody. It's uh, Friday. It is cold, but uh, we understand that spring is eventually on the way. A little bit of springtime walking in the studios here this morning. We'll talk more about that in a second. But, but we do have our friend Kirsten Pabst, our county attorney, uh, joining us for the Crime Report. Kirsten, good morning, ma'am. Well, good morning, Peter. How are you? Uh, doing doing just fine. Now that you're here, tell us what's going on. All right. Well, my office filed 11 new criminal complaints this week, which is a little lower than average and definitely down from the streak that we've been seeing the last um, several weeks in a row. Of the 11, five of those were crimes against persons, um, and three of those involved partner family member assault cases. One was a pretty serious strangulation In that case, the neighbor intervened and then called for help, which we are so grateful for. As we always say, if you see something, say something. And this person did, and he may have saved a life. There was also an assault inside the detention facility and then um, an assault on a peace officer. The charges there included, in addition to assault on a peace officer, reckless driving, um, eluding law enforcement, and leaving the scene of an accident. In the endangerment category, we charged two new cases. One involved driving with alcohol on board and a young child in the vehicle, and another involved pointing a firearm at individuals. We charged one new drug case, which was the possession of methamphetamine, and then three administrative crimes, two of which were failure to register as a sexual or violent offender, and then last but not least, obstructing a peace officer. I wanted to get an update, if you wouldn't mind, uh, you know, just uh, to m- more about your book that you just published a little while ago. I was doing very, very well in your genre and uh, wanted to find out uh, what, what the nationwide reaction has been so far. Oh, the the support um, has just been really overwhelming and humbling. Um, I, as you know, I originally wrote it to accompany a presentation that I give to newer, younger prosecutors and law enforcement officers about how to build those resiliency skills before they get thrown into the trenches of trauma. Um, And so it's been very well received in that vein, but as well as um, lots of other interested vocations have have reached out and said that they are um, they would definitely benefit from this material. It's definitely trauma is not unique. 
to the field of prosecution, but um, we definitely get our share of it. I would imagine now you, you've had the opportunity to present this in lecture form uh, in several areas. Uh, could this result in perhaps more invitations for you leaving Missoula to talk with other folks? Yes, absolutely. I've given some webinars and I've traveled a little bit with the National District Attorneys Association presenting this information, but um, and we have recently gotten more requests to provide this information to others, including, um, like I said, other vocations besides just prosecutors. Excellent. Kirsten, we're very proud of you. Thanks so much. And uh, we appreciate your, your visit this morning. Yeah, have a great weekend. Be uh, safe. And the same to you, Matt. All right, that's Kirsten Pabst, our county attorney. We have City Talk all teed up and ready to go. Aaron Payhan going to join us, going, is joining us, along with Ginny Miriam, the City of Missoula Communications Director. We're coming back with that right after this. Okay, we're back on TalkBack. This is City Talk officially now. The phones are open at 721-1290, 1-800-568-5309. Nick Christensen right over there waiting to take your calls. Joining us in, in, in the studio this morning, once again, good to have Aaron Payhan back. Welcome. Thank you for having me. It's, it's good to have you. Jenny. how are you? Very well, thank you. Good morning. Excellent. All right, so let's talk about housing. I, I know that you've got all sorts of graphs and, and <laughs> statistics there. So tell us what we're talking about today. Yeah, so we wanted to come on and share with your listeners a little bit about what this year looked like in terms of development activity across the city. We track everything from electrical and plumbing permits to demolition permits to actual homes that um, we're starting to see come up out of the ground throughout the community. And the, the good news, the headliner, is that 2022 is in another amazing year for homes in home development within our community. We saw a total of about 850 building permits for homes across our community. And um, that comes after a banner year in 2021, where we saw 1,300 homes being built in our community. Wow. A lot. Uh, That really represents a couple huge projects that we saw come through permitting last year, two affordable housing rental projects, the Villaggio and the Trinity, which are bringing us um, combined over 400 apartment homes. Well, forgive me for interrupting at, at this point because we're waiting for calls. What are this, what's the status of those two developments? Because I know people have been waiting and waiting and waiting, you know, with bated breath to find out if they're, they're on the waiting list, when those are going to be available. Yeah, so they're both, uh, we say, coming online, but they're both going to be available to the community really soon. If you drive by either site, the Trinity being um, just off uh, West Broadway and the Villaggio off Scott Street near the interstate, you'll see they look almost ready to occupy. So they're finishing up final details inside. They're actually starting to meet with people on those wait lists and sign leases and get them ready to go. I also wanted to ask you, forgive me for, for uh, concentrating on this a little bit, uh, what people have told me about who developers, who people who build houses or or repair houses, supply chain issues uh, have these two these two huge projects, hundreds and hundreds or hundreds of uh, of rooms or or apartments, if you will. Uh, how how has that how have you been able to de- defeat the supply chain monster, if you will? 
Yeah, supply chain has definitely been an issue um, all throughout the pandemic and continues on today. It's starting to ease, though. We had projects that were built and ready to go in during the pandemic that remained vacant for four or five months because they couldn't buy stoves or refrigerators to put in the apartments. We're still seeing some of that um, tension around supply, but n- now it's really more represented in increased cost inflation, which we're seeing sure. for basic supplies like lumber, windows, really across the board. I interrupted. Please continue. <laughs> uh, so the the, um, the the good news is we are building at a rapid pace, which means we're continuing to reach for um, kind of that gold star of having enough homes in our community that we start to see prices come down a little bit. And we are seeing that in the rental realm. We're seeing um, that vacancy rate creep up a little more from zero to two to three to four percent. And we're seeing uh, increases in rent stall a little bit, which is exactly what we want to have happen. Um, What we're still struggling with is homes for sale. We, last year, of that 850 number of homes being built, Less than 170 of those were single-family homes for sale. Wow. So the vast majority of construction that's happening is still around rentals, and, and that's something we um, are continually trying to crack the nut on. Now, supply and demand, it, it's kind of like waves in the ocean, right? It, it, it comes over, and then it, then it fades back, and then it comes over, and it fades back. Where are we in that cycle right now? I, it depends on housing type. I think in the rental market, and you describe it Beautifully, Peter, we we do get stuck in that supply and demand cycle, which can be endlessly frustrating for us because right when we start to make some headway, we're getting enough apartments on the market that we're seeing rents kind of come down a little bit or hold steady. Um, investors say, "Oh, wait, hold. Maybe we shouldn't build anymore right now. That you know our investments aren't quite paying off." And then we see a little stall, and then we lose that momentum that we've built. And so there's this economic piece of it that is outside of our control and can be really frustrating. But we're also looking at ways that we can incentivize or spur development, especially of single family homes um, that will entice the market to keep building. How does, uh, I know that the, the, the code reform, the building code reform is in its infancy. It's, it's beginning to rise. What, what is the status of that and how is it going to affect what you're doing? Yeah, it really will affect everything we do at, at um, community planning, development, and innovation with the city, um, and will have a direct effect effect on housing. Regulation's only one piece of the puzzle, though. You know, we, we're talking about labor shortages. We're talking about the market. Um, those are really influential factors that that we can't control at the city of Missoula. But we are in the first phase of code reform. We had a large engagement community launch of the project back how, in December. How did that go? It went incredibly well. We um, we had about 250 Missoulians show up in person to the event, a lot of others streaming the event. Um, and this is uh, the city of Missoula's first effort to really partner with Common Good Missoula, a grassroots advocacy organization in our community, to make sure that our engagement reaches deep into the community and especially into our neighborhoods to hear from people that we don't traditionally hear from in processes like this. All right. So uh, let's continue. Uh, what, what else do you have to share with us this morning? It's a lot of good. A lot of graphs, a lot of numbers there. <laughs> I think one thing that has been really interesting to us is that while we didn't hit the numbers, kind of the banner year we hit last year, when we take a farther look back, looking back into 2020, 2019, um, those years we were really hitting around 450 units 
or homes being permitted per year. And so even though we see a decrease from from our banner year in 2021, we've still doubled the amount of activity that we've seen in 2019 and 2020. And so we're still in a really good, a really aggressive pace to try to meet our housing needs. Yeah, I, I, because the one thing that I, I hear all the time, whether I'm in Costco or church or, or whatever, is... Uh, I, I, I'm, I'm here. I just moved here. I'm living with friends right now. Uh, we have we have uh, we have the wherewithal to to purchase a home or to rent a home, but we can't find one. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that, that's that's the biggest complaint we hear across the board. And we know with supply and demand that also impacts the overall cost of the home. Yeah. Um, something else we've been looking at that's really interesting is even though we saw about a 36 percent decrease from 2021 to 2022. The market value of construction only changed by 1%. Wow. And that's because we had um, some pretty expensive projects that were permitted on the University of Montana campus. And we also, again, as we see inflation, as we see rising um, rising costs of construction, and we see that reflected in the market value of homes, that also gets reflected in terms of, of that kind of inflated market value as well. It's a good reminder that market value is not assessed value, and so that doesn't mean we will automatically see this kind of expansion in our tax base, but but we hope it comes. Would you mind just kind of because when we hear uh, assessed value versus home, uh, yeah. if you could just define those two so we can see them meld together. Yeah, so market value is is what most of us find when we Google our home and we pull it up right. <laughs> on one of the many realtor sites. Right. Um, it, it's what you could sell your home for today. Um, and assessed value is what the Department of Revenue, the Property Assessment Division, has assessed to your home. So Are those two ever close together? <laughs> they, there's, there's a big lag time there. Yeah. No, they really aren't. And so what we usually see, especially in markets like Missoula, is there could be as much of 100 to 200 thousand um, dollar difference between your market value and your assessed value and as home prices as you get into the higher echelon of home prices that difference can span even wider um, well, and so, speaking speaking as a taxpayer I, I would love to have that assessed value stay as low as possible for as long as possible <laughs> if you don't mind yes well you know we don't control that but we also benefit from that too yeah, so yeah. All right. Well, we're, we're, we're up against a break. By the way, phone lines are open if you'd like to visit with Erin Payham. She is the director, by the way, of Community Planning, Development, and Innovation. And we she's here to actually talk to you and not me. So uh, let, let's get some calls in. 721-1290. We're going to come right back after this. Hey, welcome back, everybody. Thanks for joining us on this edition of Talk Back. It's City Talk. And our, our special guest here in the, this morning, Aaron Payhan, Director of Community Planning, Development, and Innovation, and uh, Ginny Miriam, uh, Director of Communications with the City. Jeff, good morning. You're on with our guests. Go ahead, please, sir. Hey, good morning. Two points I'd like to make. First of all, uh, there's a tendency to use the term building code and zoning code interchangeably, and they are completely different. Building code is comes out of the International Building Code, the IBC, and that's something that is pretty much standard from location to location. You can make exceptions based on uh, local conditions, like for foundations that you require and things, um, but it's for actual construction, whereas zoning is what type of construction are you going to allow in an area? And I think people need to be very precise when they talk about building codes versus zoning codes um, because that's uh, it's a very, very important distinction. And to confuse the two kind of muddies the waters on, 
on what's getting done by the building department. Um, <clears throat> and number two, um, early on, uh, the guest said that, uh, uh, that the city is interested in, in providing incentives to, uh, to tweak the market, so to speak. And, uh, that's not the job of a city government to try to run the market. That's social engineering. The, gov- the, the role of the government is to institute building codes and zoning codes and then get out of the way, approve permits as quickly as possible, and let builders decide what they want to do. And it's, I would argue that it's, it's the interference of the city in this process that has led to the housing problem. Uh, it's not that economics are part of the building issue. Economics drive the building issue. Uh, Dr. Barkey has said that innumerable times, that if you get out of the way, if you let people have a, a, a controlled market, it's not an absolute free market, but a controlled market, that the housing problem will take care of itself. And I just see this continued meddling in the building process as in, impeding uh, the, uh, any solution to the problem rather than uh, helping Okay, let's uh, let her respond to that. Thanks, thanks for the call, Jeff. Go ahead. Yeah, yeah thank, and thanks, Jeff, for making those clarifications between building and zoning code. That's a really good point. Um, the state does adopt uh, the IBC building code, and we follow the state adopted IBC building code. Zoning is quite different, and, and zoning isn't cut and dry. Zoning is a process by which communities... Um, it's fluid. It's fluid. And and it's based on, you know, we, we, we talk about there are two components here. One is a growth policy. And a growth policy really defines your vision as a community. It's a policy that is created collaboratively with your community. And it's supposed to define what that community holds high in terms of values, things like open space public safety, quality of life. And then our zoning code is the tool that we use to achieve those visions and values and goals that are set out in the growth policy. Um, And in that sense, you know, we use our zoning code um, to ensure that our community grows in a way that when we look back 30 years from now, we will say, yes, this was intentional. Yes, this is what we wanted. Um, a great example of how we use our zoning code to incentivize our values and goals at the city of Missoula is to uh, address affordable housing. And, and Jeff is right. You know, we the city focuses heavily on setting good code and then getting out of the way. Um, the city can't control the market. But what we do know is is that there are populations in our community, there are segments of our community, and there are types of housing that the market will never touch. And those include housing for um, individuals with fixed income, seniors on Social Security retirement income, or individuals on Social Security disability income. The market will never create housing for those individuals. Because, because, there, because there's no money in there's it. There's no money in it. There right. will, will never be a return on investment there. And so that is a place, and that is the responsibility of local municipalities to figure out how we can incentivize in the spaces that the market won't touch. And that's largely how we look at our code. So basically what I hear you, please correct me if I'm wrong here. What I hear you saying is, is uh, you could just step away from everything and just hope for the best that the market will take care of itself. And so if you did that, if, if you withdrew all of these committees and, and, you know, things that you have at the city and just, okay, market, go for it. So what, what do you think would happen? We would lose our agricultural 
soils and our agricultural components within the city, we would lose our access to open space because homes on land is always going to be more of a return on investment than um, bare open space for a community to enjoy. Um, and we would not remain a place. Hey, those soccer fields are nice and flat. <laughs> they are. Exactly. As, as are the, you know, segments of our open space and golf courses and um, lots of things. Oh, well, let me start on golf courses. No, <laughs> oh, we sorry. had a call about the golf course golf recently. <laughs> Go ahead. I'm sorry. Um, and so it's, it's important. One of our values is that Missoula remains a place where everybody has the opportunity to thrive. And if we decide that we're going to let um, the market reign supreme, um, we are going to become a place where where only those who meet the highest income brackets have an opportunity to thrive. And that's just not Missoula. Okay. Let's uh, get, I believe it's Ed, right? Uh, yeah, we Ed. Ed, good morning. Yeah, thanks for holding. You're on with Aaron Payhan. Hi. Yes. Uh, last summer, we were driving around western Washington. I think it was around Tacoma. When uh, on the car radio, they had a story about the uh, uh, county commissioners or could have been the city council, too. But the striking thing was that they were changing the number of mills in their budget uh, because the uh, value of housing went up and they don't get, they didn't get a bonus because of that because they do a budget in dollars and then adjust the mills to uh, bring in that number of dollars. Uh, Is something like that uh, possible in Missoula? That's a good question, Ed. Um, and my honest answer is, I just don't know. You know, the we we um, we very closely follow state legislation and policy around that. Um, state sets the values of mills, and that is based on a whole host of, of things, including uh, development and those market rates and assessed and, rates. And, and, and few there be that understand it. <laughs> yes, yes. It's, it's, it's very complicated. You know, our CAO, Dale Bickle, is uh, a brilliant financial mind and could probably rattle out a very uh, articulate explanation in 30 seconds. Unfortunately, I, I am not Dale. <laughs> Nor uh, am I. All right. Tell you what, we're up, we're up against a break. Thanks for the call. We do have a, a question if you could answer when we come back. I'll just say it right now. Uh, we have a, 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 an app question. It says, what is the time frame the average building permit takes from beginning to completion? So we're going to come right back. By the way, we have uh, – well, Jeff is back. Hey, Jeff. Oh, you have a question? Okay. Or a we're we're going to come right back with more talk back right after this. Okay, we're back on TalkBack, and uh, this is City Talk, ladies and gentlemen. We have Aaron Payhan with us, uh, Director of Community Planning, Development, and Innovation. That must be a really big business card. But, <laughs> <laughs> all right, let, let, let's talk about the question I just asked you a minute ago. Uh, someone uh, uh, said on the app, what is the time frame the average building permit takes? Start yeah, to yeah, I'm excited to talk about this because we're really proud of the work that we've done over the last year, year and a half on this. So... Today, a building permit, a, a simple building permit with no kind of complicated issues assigned to it for um, a single family home, just a for sale home in our community that gets built, takes anywhere from two to three weeks. Um, it can move into the four week realm if there's a complicating factor. Um, multifamily, which is rental, uh, rental apartments in our community, those can take on average about eight weeks. And then more complex commercial development. So um, uh, 
buildings on the U of M campus, additions to hospitals, things like that, they can take upwards of 12 to 16 weeks, primarily because they have commercial systems, HVAC. There's a lot more review that has to happen with those. So those are about um, slashed in half from what we were seeing when um, I came to the department a couple of years ago. We, we were smack in the middle of pandemic. We had a lot of capacity issues. And we worked really closely with the development community who came to city council, advocated on our behalf to increase um, a slate of our development fees to give us more capacity to hire more planners. And that has directly resulted in a 50% decrease in almost all of those timelines across the board. I don't know if you've been keeping track on some of the bills before the legislature right now, but but, but one of them uh, was a gentleman that I spoke to. Uh, he, he was promoting a bill that would allow uh, de- low-income development in, uh, in, in a highly commercial area because he said what happens, he called it a poison pill uh, because th- those areas are you know, very high end, uh, people you know, want, want to have higher end homes, higher end this and that. They don't really necessarily want affordable housing to be a part of that and so they're able to kind of nudge them out farther and farther away from the, the center of the city. And one of the things his bill would do would be to eliminate that and allow uh, those type of developments to coexist with the higher end. Uh, is that something that you've heard about? Yeah, there. You know, I'm currently tracking 62 land use bills wow. at the legislature. Okay, I just checked this morning, and there there are some really good bills this year. Like that, what? Like what? Um, there's there was a bill, for instance, that unfortunately was tabled last week, but that would have provided landlords tax incentives for renting to people in lower income brackets. There is a whole host of um, of tax incentive or housing trust type bills that would help fund affordable housing. On the regulatory side, there are phenomenal bills. Senate Bill 382 is a bill that we're really excited about. It is a comprehensive rewrite of land use planning and subdivision in the state of Montana. This bill is a game changer. It will change the way that cities across the state plan for and execute and implement their code, the things that Jeff was was talking about, you know, helping our helping streamline our code, create more efficient code, and then getting out of the way and let the market do its thing. So uh, do you, have you had a chance to find out, I mean, has, obviously, transmittal is coming up pretty quick where the House goes to the Senate, the Senate bills go to the House. Uh, have you been keeping track of that one? Yeah, so we, I'm, I'm spending right now about six hours a day on, on legislative issues alone um, leading up to transmittal because it comes so fast and furious. We want to make sure that our voice is heard and that we we um, are loud behind those, those bills like Senate Bill 382 that are just good, bipartisan, smart bills that will help us change the way that we do business. Have you had a chance to testify? Yeah, so we we um, have been testifying as often as we can within our team across CPDI and getting some face time in Helena. Um, and then also working with our counterparts across the state and our fantastic representatives <coughs> at the Montana League of City and Towns as well. All right, let's get right back to the phones. Tim is up next. Tim, good morning. You're on with Aaron Payhan. What's your question, sir? Good morning. Thanks for taking my call. So recently on the neighborhood Facebook or neighborhood page for over by the mall, there was a woman named Raven Black. She put her name out there for public. She was telling everybody that she was eligible for $2,200 a month in rental assistance through the city and the county. And I was wondering exactly how many people are on rental assistance and what it's costing us. Because if she's eligible for, and it was $2,200 a month for 18 months, that's around $38,000. Mm-hmm. 
So if we do that, even by 10 people, that's $380,000. And I don't know how many people are on rental assistance in Missoula. And I really don't believe that Dave Strohmeyer's estimate of $1.5 million is what we're doing for the homeless. So I wonder how much money we're paying for rental assistance. And then she was a single person at $2,200 a month for 18 months. Okay, let's let her answer. Thanks, thanks for the call. Yeah, so um, Tim, that program that she was talking about, um, and, and I believe this to be true based on that very specific number she gave you, is called the MIRA program. And that program is actually out of the Department of Commerce with the state of Montana. And the MIRA program will provide up to $2,200 for eligible individuals in rental assistance for up to a year. And that money uh, was from the Montana the um, the CARES Act at the federal level, um, and so that's, ARPA. that's like that's like ARPA money. Exactly. Right. Yep, okay. ARPA money that came directly to uh, the state and Governor Gene Forte's administration to distribute to uh, households impacted by the pandemic. And so that is a state allocation. The Mira program actually was just um, phased out. So those who currently have that rental assistance can continue to receive that rental assistance for the remainder of whatever. Um, time or contract was established with the state, but no new households are being assessed and approved under that program right now. All right, good to know. So uh, who else do we have? Jeff is back. Jeff, good morning. You're on TalkBack. Go ahead. You're back, sir. Hey, yeah, I want to, uh, again, I guess this is morning for pushing back. Uh, uh, heard a statement that no one builds homes for low-income population, and that's why the city has to do it. And I'm I'm going to go back again to Dr. Patrick Barkey, who said there is not a single car maker out there that builds cars for low-income people. I mean, they will have the lowest level of, of car price, but they don't build for low income. The way that low-income people get cars is they buy used cars. They don't buy new, and they buy cars that, especially if they're very low, that are less desirable than other cars, so they don't cost as much. And so, again, it becomes an income or an economic problem that building low-income housing doesn't solve the problem. It's building enough housing so that people who have a lower-priced house have enough income to buy another house, and then they can sell their house to somebody. Or there's other things like ride-sharing. You know, you have Lyft and Uber for people who can't afford. You have uh, can't afford their own vehicle. You can uh, have, you know... Uh, apartments at rent, and I'm sure there are people who will build an apartment house that that, for a, that will have uh, not quite the fixtures, but that will accommodate a lower income set of people if we just let the market do its thing. And again, I'm not asking for an uncontrolled market because, yes, we don't want to pave over all the parks and and that sort of thing. This, the community gets to decide what the community wants. And then it's the city government's job to implement what this community wants. So it's not an uncontrolled process, but it's it's you can over control that whole process by having by trying to pick and choose winners and losers. All right, Jeff, thanks for the call. We're up against a break. You can comment that when we come back. All right. Seven two one twelve ninety. All of our phone lines are open now. If you'd like to visit with Aaron Payhan, who is the director of community planning, development, and innovation with the city of Missoula. Ginny Miriam also joining us here in the studio. This is uh, what we call City Talk, and she is, she is here to talk with you 
in the city. So <laughs> if you have a question or comment, call 721-1290. We'll be right back. Okay, we're back. Talk back, rolling right along. It's City Talk. I'm Peter Christian. Dick questions and over there taking your phone calls this morning. Aaron Payhan, uh, you, you wanted to respond a little bit to what Jeff just said. There, there is a principle that you mentioned that you, if you could explain it to us, yeah, please. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's, it's not unlike trickle-down economics. In the housing <clears throat> realm, we call it filtering. And so essentially what what Jeff was articulating is that as we build more and more housing in our community, the market puts more homes out there that um, what we call naturally occurring affordable housing, mobile home parks, duplexes and fourplexes built in the 70s, those become less desirable because the individuals renting those can um, afford these newer places with more amenities. And so they fall kind of lower down on that scale, that filtering scale, and those landlords can charge less rents for them. So they they get maintained but or do, they get pushed into naturally occurring affordable housing. But do they? I mean, because with with the vacancy rate that we have right now, landlords can say, I don't care what shape it's in. Here's what you're going to pay. Yeah. So that is the theory. That's how the theory works. For that to be efficient or, or to be true in any community, you have to hit a vacancy rate of about 10% is kind of the industry norm around that. Missoula has not hit a rental vacancy rate of 10% in over a decade. Um, we hover around uh, 3 to 5% when we are producing units well. Um, we slipped to 0% when we see that number go down. We've been at 0% for the last several years. We are finally climbing <clears throat> our way back up to 3%. And so, unfortunately, that, that principle is not relevant for us right now. And with the nationwide housing shortage, we're seeing that principle becoming less and less relevant across the nation. Okay, let's, uh, let's get Tim back on the line. Tim, good morning. Thanks for holding. Go ahead, sir. Well, thanks. i Appreciated the answer. My question would be, so when all of this money, federal government money ends, and landlords and tenants can no longer pay rent of that $2,200 a month supplement, what's the city, county got, and state got for a plan to stop all the evictions that will happen? Because now the low-income people aren't getting that $2,200 a month, and they can't make the rent on the units they have. That is a very good question. Thank you, Tim. Go ahead. That is a very good question, and um, that was one of our primary concerns about the MIRA program as it was designed by the state of Montana. There is there is no safety net, and there is no backstop for families who receive up to $2,200, and now on one month, sometime in the next year, it will cease to become available to them. Um, we were looking at that as we um, presented uh, the, the uh, crisis intervention levy to the community, trying to think ahead that we would see more and more families and individuals falling into homelessness as a result of the expiration of those MIRA funds. Um, unfortunately, that levy failed in our community. And so um, so that is a clear message to us that, um, that at this point in time, um, that was not something the community wanted to invest in. And so we're, we're trying to think of other ways that we can try to support that at the city, but we're really limited with our resources. A uh, famous old book said, the poor you will always have with you, right? I mean, uh, and unfortunately, we, we all wish we could do something about it. Uh, but as a city, when, when you look at our response, your responsibility, as you see it, is trying to help the whole city all, mm -hmm. all in one package and not one favoring one over another. How do you keep those balls balancing? 
It's an incredibly difficult balance, and I think we're lucky in that we have elected officials who who share those values and want to continually try to figure out how we make sure this is a place where everyone has the opportunity to thrive. We partner heavily with the nonprofit community. I came from the nonprofit community as the prior executive director of the Pavarello Center for over a decade, and so I, I have that experience in the trenches, and I also have that experience at this really high policy level. Um, and it's equally difficult at both levels um, because there's no simple solution. And if there was a simple solution to ending poverty and homelessness in our community, we would have done it a long time ago. The problem is constantly morphing and shifting, and we're constantly having to become more sophisticated and more innovative to try to find solutions. And people, you know, people are doing what they need to do. I mean, they're, they're getting a second job or a third job. Uh, they're just trying to afford where they're living. Uh, sometimes they end up bunking with, with somebody for a while until something opens up. I mean, th- these are avenues that we don't really see in our everyday lives, but it's happening every day. It's happening every day. And I, and I think the community is responding to some of the innovative solutions that we've seen um, are coming out of the development community. There's a fantastic uh, development that is being built currently. It's, it's almost done on 6th Street. Uh, that is a cooperative living development. And so essentially has single individual bedrooms and shared community spaces like kitchens and bathrooms. And it's and that development is for um, seniors in our community who can't afford to rent an apartment, um, who want the community uh, and they want connection around them, um, but also can't afford to live in a retirement home. And so it's kind of a blend and, and specifically looking to address that need in our senior community. We need innovative development types like that across our community. So so the, the, this is something that you didn't put out a, a call to, to developers. They just did it because they saw they mm-hmm. for, first of all, developers don't do anything for nothing. Right. They, they know they're going to make a profit, even if it's a small profit. So but th- th- this is something that. Uh, I, I see the city is encouraging that no matter what the profit level might be, let's go for it. Exactly. And this is a developer, I should say, <laughs> that, that these things do do need some kind of subsidy or support. Um, this developer was, was gifted this land um, by a, a church, a parish here in our community, and then was able with that gift to, to build this incredible new housing type that we haven't seen yet in our community. All right. We're up against another break. When we come back, we'll talk about West End Homes. All right. And we still, I think we have a call coming in. We're going to get to that as well. Our guest here in the studio, we want to say thank you to Aaron Payhan for spending this hour with us. I know you're, you're a busy lady. And thanks for coming by and yeah, being with us. Yeah, thanks for having me. We're, we're going to come right back after this one-minute timeout. Okay, we're back on Talk Back. I'm Peter Christian. Nick Christensen over there taking your phone calls. And uh, Marilyn is on the line right now. Good morning. Marilyn, how are you? Hi. Um, so just a discussion of senior housing just came up. So I attended a church in Missoula for 20-some years, and they've got a huge piece of property. And many years ago, they went to the city, county, wanted to build a senior complex on there. They were denied, flat out denied. And it would have taken them a lot of money to fight that and Marilyn do you you know why it was denied no I don't and since then um, you know we've seen these apartment complexes built right up to the edge of the road I mean there was so much plenty of land there it would have been perfect and yet they were denied I think they were just denied because it was a church and you know nonprofit whatever and I just really get sick of the government always having to be the one that Oh, you know, you can only do it if you have their approval and only if their 
um, you know, grabbing our money to do what they say is the way to go. I mean, it's pretty disgusting, and I wish the church would have fought it. I still think they well, should do it. It let's, would let's, it would serve a lot of elderly people yes, at it certainly would. very low cost. Let's let her answer that. Th- thanks for the call. Appreciate it, Marilyn. Go ahead. Yeah, without having detail, I can't or know what parcel or church it is. I can't really speak to the specific project that Marilyn was talking about. I can say that we work with the faith community um, on a handful of projects every year, um, whether those be uh, senior homes or cooperatives like the one that we just talked about, um, or even remodels, additions, renovations. Um, Our faith community is very active in the service realm, um, both through programs like Family Promise to support uh, families that fall into homelessness or just a variety of service programs. So we have a long history of collaboration there, and hopefully that will continue. You bet. All right, let's uh, let, let's talk a little bit now about West End Homes. It's right here at the bottom of my list here, and I want to make sure we get it in. So this, yeah. this is a pretty exciting deal. What's going on? Yeah, West End Homes and West End Farm Park uh, are a... Proposed agri-hood, we're making up a word a little bit there, in the Swatupkane area. It's in the hood, baby. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Uh, in the Swatupkane area, which is the Mullen area of our community. And this is a proposal that will build 240 homes. There will be a mix of um, kind of lower and higher density, so more compact and then more spread out. Um, homes that will be targeting first-time home buyers and households that earn between 80 and 120% of the area median income. Um, and the, the way that they're doing this and they're targeting those specific families across our community is through this profit share model, which will um, attach a silent second mortgage to the home that will help um, that individual buy that home at a lower price. Um, and then that that second silent second mortgage can be paid off at a later time. Um, the exciting part about this is it finally um, shows the community what we know, but what is tricky, that we don't have to trade off our values one for another. We often see these conflicts between agricultural conservation and the development of housing, um, see them as in conflict to one another and not being able to be achieved in the same space. This is a great example of that. In addition to the 240 homes that will be built for those moderate income households in our community. There will be a 28 acre, that's about the size of McCormick Park, a 28 acre park and working farm that will be a part of this development. And so we're preserving those agricultural soils. We're providing that open space that is such a part of our identity as Missoulians. And we're providing um, 240 40, 250 homes to our community members. So is, is there a time frame on this? So this is pretty early in the process. It just went through its subdivision and annexation process, which is a land use process associated so th- this, with this it. So this land's in the county? This land is now in the city. Oh, it was now in the in county. The city. Okay, yep, right. Now in the city. So it's been annexed. It's been annexed right. in, and they're working with parks on some of the preliminary pieces of, of the park. A lot of things have changed in the financial realm. Interest rates have skyrocketed, and so these, are, these changes, these economic changes, changes are requiring developers to kind of go back to the drawing board and get a little bit creative to make sure these projects can still work under the current financial environment. Um, But we're really excited about this one moving ahead. Is there a time frame? So, yeah, 
Yes. Yes and no. I think a lot of that depends, again, on creativity and the market and how this needs to be phased. And so right. there's a financial component there. Um, but but moving through the subdivision, it's called preliminary plat. There's a lot of technical wonkiness I won't go into around that. <laughs> but those lots have been created. They've been subdivided. And then the next stage is that the they'll come in for final plat. And final plat shows a lot more detail. Here are the drawings. Here are what the homes are, will look like. Here's what the total development will look like. And then they'll go into building permit. Um, for some developments, that can happen in as little as 12 to 18 months. Others, it may take a year or two. And so that it's really on the developer this is, this at this a, point this, in time. This is a very large, very large, yeah, very yeah. large system yeah. here. So, yeah. and, and is there any idea, uh, ballpark, what the average home might be selling for or, or uh, when they, when they, to apply for this, they have, have, have comply with all the, you know, qualifications. Uh, any idea what the price point might be? You know, I, I don't think at this point in time they have that really clearly outlined. What I can say is generally not specific to this project, but when we talk about homes that are affordable for people in that kind of 80 to 120 percent of area median income, which means, you know, you make on average about 80 to 120 percent of what people in our community make, um, homes at that level to be affordable are typically in the realm of, uh, you know, 290000 up to, um, you know, three hundred. Hundred and seventy-five thousand, and so that's kind of the realm of um, home price that you would be looking at. First house I bought, in Missoula, eighteen thousand dollars. This is a long time. Ago. I hope you kept that house, back, Peter. Back, back, <laughs> back, 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 back in the seventies, it was over on South Tenth Street. You know, little tiny house. Yeah. But yeah, go ahead, Jenny. Great neighborhood. Too. Yeah. <laughs> is that where you live? No. Oh. <laughs> but. All right. We have a minute and a half left. So, Aaron, I'm going to leave this to you. Let's wrap it up. If people want to get more information about all this and maybe do some studying on their own. So the next time you guys are on, we can have uh, more callers and more questions. Go ahead. Absolutely. We have this fantastic new tool at the city of Missoula called Engage Missoula. You can Google just that, Engage Missoula, and it will take you right to the site. On that site, you can find a comprehensive list of every single project that the city of Missoula has under land use review right now. And there are upwards of 70 projects on that list. Those are projects that are going through a rezone, going through a subdivision process, maybe need a small technical shift like a boundary line relocation. Um, And that helps you see just the scale and scope of what we're dealing with at the city of Missoula in terms of land use review. Um, But then it also has really beautiful narrative descriptions of some of those projects, projects like West End Homes and West End Farm Park, where you can read um, what that project brings to our community. You can leave official formal public comment for our city councilors and our elected officials to read and you can learn about those timelines of when this when this will come to completion how about a phone number how to reach your office and website yeah our office can be reached um, at 552-6300 and um, again easily found on the internet uh, through the city of missoula's website Aaron, it's been a pleasure thank you thanks for sharing that taking all these calls thanks jenny appreciate thank it thank you all right so nick uh, you're not going to be here mondays but who's going to be here in your stay uh, well, you'll have Walt Kiro and Christian will be answering the phones on Monday. Fantastic. Christian and Christian of Beverly Hills. Have a great weekend, everybody. Stay warm out there.